Hi, folks. We are back with another podcast episode. You have met some of our other fellow staff members. I have Mr. Alan Lucan here, who is a brand manager with us at Seagrest Inc., who has a marine science degree and has a myriad of professional things he does here at Seagrest. So, Alan, I'm going to let you roll into tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to your professional job here at Seagrest. Yeah, you know, for me, it started when I was really young. Uh, I think with everyone who comes from my generation who got into marine science, marine biology, whatever, um, we all started by watching Jacques Cousteau, uh, David Attenborough, a lot of these big name guys who anytime you turn the Discovery Channel on, we would watch and you just can't help but get enamored with everything about the oceans, everything about marine life. So that's where it started for me uh, and got me really into it. Um, and then as I kind of got more into the point where I was starting to look at my profession, what career path I wanted to go down, uh, I, I really wanted to focus on the pet side of things. Uh, so I worked pet retail at an independent pet store in Cincinnati, Ohio, where I'm from, uh, for about nine years or so. In that process, I went to Coastal Carolina University, got my marine science bachelor's degree, uh, and then came back for a little bit uh, to the pet store just to kind of feel things out. You know, after college, how do, how do we do it? We're young adults. We don't know what we're doing. Um, but then got into, uh, I worked uh, in the public aquarium sector and public zoo sector in, in Cincinnati and then in, in Nashville, Tennessee uh, for a, about a year or so. And then the Seagrist Farms opportunity just kind of came about. Um, I, I had previous experience with Seagrist Farms, being at a pet store, of course. So I was very familiar with Seagrist, uh, always admired them as a company as a, a, on the customer side of things. So I saw a job posting and, you know, I, I went for it and uh, I was extremely fortunate, uh, got the job, got hired, was able to come down here to Tampa. And uh, it's been a, a, a bit of a whirlwind ever since I got hired. A lot of people don't know, but I was hired as a salesperson. And if you know me, you know, I couldn't sell a polar bear ice, so I am not a, a salesperson by any stretch of the imagination. I think everyone here recognized that rather quickly. Uh, and, and then, you know, I kind of shifted around and ultimately ended up uh, working in the marine department. I did special projects and oversaw quality control uh, and then kind of expanded on, you know, as work through. I spent some time as the one of the marine buyers uh, and now I'm happy to be a, a brand manager. So, so you have a wide variety. And I think, you know, for what I wanted to have you on this episode for is really important to the industry. And I don't think it gets talked about enough is vendor audits and your perspective of all the different avenues of seeing it from every point of being a, you know, a hobbyist to a retailer, to public aquaria, to wholesale buying, uh, to purchasing. It really gives you a great perspective and really a, a well needed a bit of knowledge on our team. So when we talk about vendor audits, you know, give our audience a little background on, on what that means. What is a vendor audit? Why does Seagrasink do it? So yeah, vendor audits are extremely important, not just for Seagrasink, but for the industry as a whole. Uh, so vendor audits, and specifically what I'm responsible for here are the marine vendor audits. So all of our suppliers that supply us with uh, live animals from marine, from saltwater, uh, we audit on an annual basis, whether it's virtually uh, or whether it's in person. So we do a little bit of both to make sure we can hit everybody every single year uh, and make sure that things are where we need them to be and everybody is following the guidelines that we've put forth. So if you're unfamiliar uh, with Seagrest and how we source our animals, you know we not only source domestically, but we also source internationally from around 30 different countries around the globe. 
Uh, and that concludes, you know, aquaculture and sustainable wild collection. And really it comes down to a mouthful of responsible, ethical, sustainable uh, collection and aquaculture. So what are some of those guidelines and what does that mean to us and the hobbyists? Yeah, so as Seagrass Inc., it's extremely important to us that the animals come first, right? So in every scenario, no matter whether it's an animal that's farmed two miles down the road from us here in Tampa, or whether it's an animal that's being shipped on a freight airliner from the other side of the planet, we have standards in place in which must be followed by our suppliers. So in building out these standards, and they're rather complex, but in building out these standards, we source from different organizations and we always take into account different legislation like CITES, like different transport requirements, and of course, local and domestic regulations uh, that we have to follow for animal welfare. So we, when you put all of those things together, you get the basis of how we build out our requirements for collectors. And, and that, in, in essence, is how we start the audit process. We build the foundation first of the things that have to be true. And then on top of that, we can talk about what's built on that that applies specifically for what Seagrass Think stands for. Absolutely. Oh, and I, I believe that we have some pretty high standards. You know, Elvin set this foundation down over 60 years ago, and it's something that rings true uh, to this day. Uh, and I think is even more important in a uh, society that we have such transparency and such uh, importance put upon this. Um, so really, what does that mean for the future of the hobby? You know, as we do these vendor audits, as we're looking at habitats and safe collection, and how do we ensure that we're growing and protecting safe habitats uh, for the hobby for the future? Right, and that's a key part of any sort of sourcing of any live animal. The one single most important thing that we do is everything about our supply chains, everything about how we source is sustainable. And in this situation, we define sustainable as not impacting the needs of the future. So anything we do today has no negative impact for tomorrow. And, it's, and that's extremely important because while we're the ones sourcing it for this generation, we hope that everything's around for generations and generations to come. So when we talk to suppliers about whether it's aquaculturing in their own facility here in Florida or somewhere in the United States or overseas, or when we talk to them about collecting wild animals, of course, sustainably, but when we talk about that, one of the keys we always focus on is how does it impact essential fish habitat? Now, if you're not an ecologist or marine biologist or, or someone who is intimate with those types of terms, what essential fish habitat is, is habitat in the natural environment, which is essential, duh, needed for these animals to be able to survive, thrive, and reproduce. So no matter what we do, no matter how we collect animals, that habitat and the fish that the fish is, excuse me, that inhabit that habitat have to remain unimpacted. And that's critical. And that's sustainability in kind of a very vague nutshell. But that's the start of it. That's how you get to the point where you can truly say that these supply chains are sustainable. Now, when you talk about aquaculture and mariculture in particular, it's hard to kind of see how could they possibly impact essential fish habitat or anything similar. There's a myriad of other terms that come into play. Well, you can't just think about someone going out with a net and collecting the animal off of a, a rocky reef or what have you. It also has to do with the impacts of the supply chain in general. So if you have an aquaculture facility, the things that we're looking at 
are things like, do you have water runoff from your facility? Are you using natural seawater? If so, how are you getting it? What impacts does your physical facility have on the natural environment around you? And is that negatively impacting the essential fish habitat or any habitats within the region around you? If it is, we have to correct it. That is a hands down, no gray area line for us. And that is something, again, as we talk about, there's a set of standards within Seagrass Inc. That's one of the things that goes above and beyond the normal regulations, the normal laws, the normal you have to do this and do this because of the government. That's something that Seagrass Inc. stands by. You cannot negatively impact the natural environment in sourcing animals, and it's critical for us. So I talked a little bit about, you know, protecting the wild habitat as we are collecting animals. Um, there's a lot of pieces that goes into how we collect those animals and goodness, what those guidelines are. So I know you saw it firsthand, you know, what are some of those things that you've seen and what are some of the things we have in place uh, that keep those animals coming in healthy and, and everything safe and sound? Yeah. So when we talk about sustainable collection, you know, I think everyone has sort of a predisposed notion of what that is, but it, it's really, there's a lot that goes into it that I don't think it's talked about enough uh, or that is understood enough. And that's something that we're working on through Seagrass Inc, uh, through our sustainability initiatives in which we'll be launching here in the, the very near future for public access and public outreach. But, um, you know, when you, when you look at sustainable collection, so when we say sustainable collection, what we mean is collecting animals from the wild environments uh, sustainably, of course. It's why we put sustainable in front of it. That is an absolute uh, requirement. There is no flexibility within that. Uh, so when we talk about sustainable collection, there are standards almost all on their own that go into sustainable collection because that piece is extremely complex. And not complex in the sense of this makes it a really convoluted and, and jaggedy supply chain. No, 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 no. Complex, again, in the sense that it's a live animal. You have a human who is collecting this live animal. Uh, and, and you've got to ensure safety. You've got to ensure responsibility. You've got to uh, ensure, above all, uh, sustainability. So when we talk to suppliers about uh, sustainable collection uh, and for those suppliers who are sustainable collectors for us we require um, them to do a lot more than what's legally required essentially so there's uh, there's obviously there's laws for collecting uh, live animals from from wild uh, habitats um, every country has them uh, in, in some shape or fashion if you live in the United States you're very familiar with them think about the fishing license that you need uh, just to go fishing um, so there's similar laws uh, in every country. Now, every country has different laws, which makes some of our lives a little bit more tedious at times, but again, labor of love, so I won't complain. Um, but so you have the set of laws, and then we look at it from an animal health uh, perspective kind of first, because that's a key cog of sustainability. If what we're doing is damaging in any way to the animal we're collecting, obviously that's absolutely not okay. And then again, when we look at essential fish habitat, the, the region in which this animal is being collected, if it's damaging to that habitat in any way, shape, or form, uh, it's an absolute no. So there's no gray area there. If there's any sort of damage, that's it. Game over. Not going to work for us. Not a supply line we're going to follow. So we take the steps to ensure that the animal that's collected, the habitat, and the animals within that habitat where it's collected, all are uh, safe. 
and, and there's no damage, no negative impacts whatsoever. Uh, so some of the ways that we do that are requirements on training of divers. So the folks who are actually going out and physically collecting, uh, and, and you know, this is a good, when you think about, um, the divers in the ocean, I, you know, if you're a diver, you know, this, uh, you know, when I dive, um, it's, it's otherworldly and there, and there's an inherent risk with getting in the ocean at any time, uh, because of all of the factors, all of the, the mother nature essentially. So it's critical that our suppliers and their divers understand that and understand how to be safe. That is extremely important. Animal health is a priority and is the priority. But diver safety, diver health is absolutely critical. Again, this is an area where we have absolutely no gray area. If at any point a supplier's diver is in any sort of danger where it's direct danger because they are collecting the manner in which they're collecting, the animals in which they're collecting, whatever it is, that's it. Nope, that's not a supply chain for Seeger Snake. That is done. There is no debate whatsoever uh, at any given point or any given time. Uh, so diver safety, diver education, diver training is critical. And, and one of the, uh, specifically one of the steps outside of kind of requiring, uh, the divers to be aware of the risk and, and to how to mitigate that risk and how to dive safely, how to collect safely is actually sponsoring, uh, net training programs overseas. So this is again, another absolute hard stop for us. If as a supplier, that supplier is not using net collecting techniques and not just net collecting techniques because if, if you don't know if you're not in like the commercial fishing industry and i didn't know this uh, until i was uh, well within a, a fisheries course within college there's i don't know like 30 or 40 different types of nets that are used on a commercial level to collect fish now a lot of that's for the seafood industry but the same logic can be applied gate nets hoop nets link, uh, link nets oh, it goes on and on and on. I thought it was just like, hey, you're fishing it. Uh, it's not. So there's uh, a, a lot of different techniques and tactics. Some of our suppliers were the kind of pioneers of the net collection, you know, movement. So moons and moons and moons ago, these group of individuals got together and said, we need to focus on how we can improve collection practices. And they did so in a way that could be applied globally. So these folks who started this are, are still in operation today uh, and, and not necessarily as like one organization, it's just multiple people doing it. Um, so they're within multiple organizations, multiple suppliers, in fact. And we were a part of some of that original where we, Elwin and, and Quentin were, this was before uh, my time before I was uh, born. <laughs> so, um, but so these people have developed because they are collectors they've developed these net training protocols and procedures and it's to say that it's a science is kind of an understatement uh the, the pride that they have in it is incredible uh it is next level type stuff it's you know when you talk about the best of the best of the best it's these folks they do things right they do things ethically they do things sustainably and, and they apply that to net trainings and what they do, um, if you're not familiar with net trainings, which you, you can see some of these on social media, in fact, uh, on, especially on Facebook. But what they do is take a select group of divers who work for this supplier uh, and, and they go out with these experts who have been doing it for sometimes 
decades, since the, the, the late 80s. And they take these divers through an extremely rigorous course. Uh, in fact, I've, I've participated in one of them sort of virtually because, again, COVID. Um, but I, I know a ton of people have gone through them, obviously, our suppliers and our di the divers who work for our suppliers, but also a good colleague and good friend of mine has actually gone through, just to see what it's like, uh, gone through one of these courses. And it's, if, you, if, if you're a certified scuba diver, think about that uh, on steroids. Uh, times like 45 million because it's so incredibly intense but for the right reason you have as, as a collector as a sustainable collector for the aquarium industry you have a moral and ethical responsibility to that animal and to that habitat so you have to be you can't just be good you know it, it's it's like professional athletes and it, it's a perfect equation for these guys because a lot of us can probably use a net and scoop a fish out like i'm pretty good at it you know when we get into the zebra danios and stuff I, I forget about it i can't catch them so you touched you know a lot on sustainable wild collection and we have the same guidelines and the same you know things standards that we need to have for our aquaculture facilities here our partners that we purchase from globally uh, as well as Mariculture. And I think all three play a large role in making us who we are in the future of the hobby. Um, so talk to us a little bit about how those three have to be part of the industry and make it work. Yeah, absolutely. So the standards that we have and the way we conduct our audits, again, apply to all of our supply lines, whether that's aquaculture, whether it's Mariculture, whether it's sustainable collection. So we do that for one very specific reason. And that reason is all three of those source lines, especially for marine, are extremely important for the future of the trade. The benefits for the trade from aquaculture, mariculture, and sustainable collection are critical for the future of the pet trade, especially the marine animal trade. So the way that it works for us, at least, is we look at each as what are the benefits from the from each individual source, essentially, each individual supply line, and how can we capitalize that on the most? So when we look at aquaculture, for example, you look at the husbandry and the technology and all the advancements that come with breeding a new fish, raising it from a larval stage up, you gain so much insight in that, you take that information, you can apply it to mariculture, you can apply it a sustainable collection because all of those steps at some point or another involve husbandry, involve taking care of that animal. Same with mariculture. You look at the benefits of mariculture and we could spend an entire podcast just on that. Um, but you look at how are corals being grown? What is the most successful way of growing these corals? And then there's implications, of course, for coral restoration, which is one of the coolest things in the world that the pet trade drives some of the innovation for reef restoration globally, which is mind boggling to me, but is really neat. And then with sustainable collection, how can we go about our business sustainably? How can we have the variety that the trade needs? How can we protect the natural environment, which sustainable collection does, and we can touch on that, but how can we protect the natural environment? And how can we get the animals to the people that need them in a safe, responsible manner? Definitely. Uh, and for those of you that don't know, uh, we do uh, vendor audits virtually, especially this year. Uh, and, you know, some of these are in a little bit more of a remote area. Um, so safe travels and, and such as things like that. Um, so we also do go visit them. You know, Alan, I know you said you do the marine branch side of things. So tell us a little bit about when you get over there and you visit some really fantastically unique places. <laughs> I'm sure you have plenty of great stories as a, a fish enthusiast to tell. 
Uh, but tell us a little bit about when you get there, you're, you're focused on, you know, the health of the animals, the processes, you know, the laws that we have to watch, uh, not only in that country, but the laws that we have to adhere to. So walk us through some of those steps. Yeah. So as we do these audits, and yes, we do a lot of them virtually, and this year we're doing all of them virtually, uh, but we typically will do them annually. We'll do in-person ones every single year. Um, so the most recent one we did in Bali and Jakarta in Indonesia. So to kind of set the mind frame of how these work when we're physically over in person and the same logic applies for virtual, um, but quite frankly, the setting is way cooler in Indonesia than just sitting behind my desk uh, at 3 a.m. because of the time differences. But regardless, so the way that these work, and, and again, we'll use Indonesia because it was the most recent one as the example. Weeks prior, as we build up to the, to the audit process, there is an in-depth study of all of the laws and regulations for that particular source country, how they apply to international laws, regulations, and treaties like CITES, and are there any updates that we need to adhere to from the previous audit from the previous year? So that takes a significant effort right off the gate. And what we do in the process of working through that, we are obviously in contact with our suppliers, but in the buildup to all of these audits, every single year, at the beginning of every single year, we distribute what we call our marine supplier statement of commitment. And what that is, is a document that we have come up with here at Seagrass Inc. And it's been adapted over the years and it changes as laws and regulations and as frankly as our policies as we learn and get better it adapts and every single year every single one of our marine suppliers has to sign and agree to everything within that statement of commitment and adhere to it for all 365 days of that period and it's critical that every single supplier does because that statement of commitment outlines everything that we require of a supplier how they collect how they transport how they take care of animals everything so as we've got that, as they're reading through that, and it's a rather substantial document, so which is penned by a lot of us here at Seeger's Thing, but as they're reading through that, we're doing our backend research on any potential legislative updates. And then once we're there, it's really quite an experience, as you can imagine. But from the standpoint of, we see the end product here where we are in the United States, but if you're watching from another country as as importers, as hobbyists, we see the end product. When you're over uh, with these collectors and quite literally side by side as they're collecting fishes, it's a little bit different. It, it puts a different spin on things and you have to put yourself in a different mindset. The country's different. The laws and regulations are different. The culture is different. But at the end of the day, this is why we have these standards because these standards are universal apply to everyone, sustainability doesn't change country by country, at least not for us. We follow a very strict guideline on sustainability, on what it means to be a supplier, how to be responsible and ethical and sustainable. So as we're over there, we're going through these documents with the suppliers. I can tell you, for example, and I won't go on too many of these anecdotes, but for example, uh, in Jakarta last year, uh, you can ask if you ever talked to this particular supplier, we spent the better part of, oh, 48 hours, I would say, uh, locked in a, essentially an office building, which is, it was actually pretty wild. It was like the second floor of a fish house. So the view here, I don't have much of a view. 
there we were looking down over this massive fish house it was wild um but so we were locked in that office room for about 48 hours and if you remember this is right around the time when the indonesian coral uh export ban update was coming out so we're reviewing documents that are being proposed to the indonesian government here's what the collectors are wanting and we get some influence on that so we get to say okay this makes sense for what we require this makes sense for sustainability this works for us and there were times when we looked at it and said i don't know about that i explained to me how that will apply to what we require and there was good discussion it was back and forth discussion about how we can move this entire trade forward and be more sustainable so you do a lot of that you do a lot of of office type uh, setting work. Um, there's a lot of travel. The fish houses sometimes are in very remote parts of the country. So I spent uh, eight hours in the car, which I didn't think you could in some of these small island countries, but you can apparently. Uh, so I spent eight hours in the car driving from one side of uh, Bali to the other, um, but it's all worth it, no doubt about it. Uh, and, and, you know, outside of the the, the type of legislative and office and uh, on paper type work, uh, we do everything with them. They go about their business. They've got a business to run. They've got a supplier, uh, supply house to run. They've got vendors to fulfill. Uh, and, and we kind of just observe and we make comments and we work with them if we see opportunity for improvement. And they help us too. When we're over there, one of the cool things is we can see how our fish are packed on site. So again, and again, I'm sorry for going on another anecdote. I could talk about this for hours. Uh, so for example, again, uh, in, in Indonesia, or this, excuse me, this was in the Philippines. So this was the year prior. We're in, uh, we're in uh, just outside of Manila in the Philippines. And uh, sure enough, I, I show up at the facility in the, the morning of, and they go, we just got your order. And at the time I was still doing a lot with the, the buying. I was like, really? Okay, that's cool. So how come, like, what do we do now? Um, so it was a pretty wild experience to see how the process goes from the animals are at the fish house now, right? So let me take a step back. The way that our supply chains and the way that a lot of marine supply chains work when it's sustainable collection, especially in uh, overseas in the Indo-Pacific, uh, in, in Australia, same, same manner here, is there are one of two things. There are, is either a collection station that is physically right on the water. It's where the, the, the boats or whatever it is that they use to get out. Sometimes they can just walk off the beach because they live in those areas and I'm so jealous. Um, but there's a, a physical fish house where some of them actually have like uh, we would call liveaboard boats, uh, not sailboats, but you get the idea where they actually take a boat out from somewhere and can spend multiple days on the water collecting animals they have uh the the boats are they're wild actually um they're they're kind of rigged with equipment to take care of all these animals while they're out there on the ocean which is crazy to me um so but th those are really the two options right for how you're collecting uh sustainable collected animals and then you have to take the animals from these uh collection facilities which are owned by uh, a supplier and back to that supplier's fish house. And what the fish house is, is say you're in the Philippines, right? Your fish house could be in Manila, which is the capital country, very metropolitan, has the big airport, international. So it makes sense, right? Logistics to get it to export. You may have collection stations in Batangas and Cebu and all over the place 
that are nowhere near Manila, you have to get the animals from those collection stations to where you are in Manila. So that's part of the supply chain. And, and that's part of what we talk to them about. And that's part that we get to see, right? So not only is it how are the animals collected, but then you're transporting from where they were collected to where ultimately they're going to be held for export. And now they're, again, they're owned by the same company. So it's an easy transit. It's not anything that's terribly complicated, but there's steps that need to be taken. You've got to be able to pack the fish. You've got to be able to put the fish in a vehicle that is going to sustain them. These countries are tropical countries, so they're warm. How do you get the animals from A to B? Sometimes it can be on a ferry. Sometimes it can be in a, a big, uh, we call them reefer trucks, but they're like the air conditioned controlled uh, vehicles. Uh, but, you know, so then they get to the fish house. In the fish house, that's really where the magic happens. And that's kind of where we'll pick back up on the story, right? So we just get this order in. That's just so happens to be the Seegers Farms order. And uh, we're talking through, okay, well, here's how we typically pack. And by we, I mean the fish supplier, right? So I'm kind of letting them do what they normally do and doing everything within my power, not to just start geeking out and go, okay, I know we ordered this, but I really want this because the amount of fish that they have just the variety is incredible, but there's a limited amount of space. And I knew that and uh, it took, it, I screwed up at the very end, but we'll get there. Um, so, so you get to see the processes that go into play. And these exporters and these collectors take health and, and quality, especially extremely seriously. Um, you know, you, you kind of have an image in your head when you think about where your fish come from. I can tell you it's probably wrong. They take it so seriously that the standards that they have in place, we've actually learned from and we can apply in, in, in different uh, scenarios here in the United States. And some of this, the learnings we've taken from some of these collectors, because they're really the boots on the grounds experts, are now being applied to your local fish store. There's things that we've learned from fish collectors that are applied to your local fish store. If you don't think that's neat, then I don't know what to tell you, because that's crazy to me. So the steps that all get that go into that are, are mind boggling. And then they're, as they pack the order, they've got a lot to think about, because if you think here in the United States, we may send something, you know, from one state to three states over. They have a gigantic ocean that they have to traverse to get it to us. So there's, again, more standards that come into play. How do we get things healthily and, and maintain the quality? And, and, and they do an amazing job. And all of our suppliers do an amazing job really of make sure, making sure, excuse me, uh, that they maintain that quality throughout the supply chain. So it's really, it's, it's a wild experience to see. Um, that's one we could probably talk about for three or four days. And if you ever see me somewhere and you want to talk about fish houses and, and travels abroad to marine suppliers, uh, I'm happy to, especially if we get like a chicken tender platter, we can talk about it all day long. But uh, yeah, so it's, it's crazy, but to, to finish that story. So at the very end, we had about a box and a half left over of space. And uh, uh, outside of, if you know me, you know what my favorite fish is. Um, but outside of my favorite fish, one of my favorite fish is uh, the, the sunburst antheus. Or you might call them a fathead antheus. And they had just gotten, well, not just gotten, but had just cleared. So the fish, once they're collected, go into this temporary holding where it's, uh, how's the fish look now that it's here at our facility? Let it settle in. Let it kind of make sure the quality is up to par and, and so on and so forth. And then it kind of gets transitioned to a, these are ready for export. So these had just got shifted to that ready for export that morning. And uh, so we're like, yeah, we got a box and a half left. And I was like, how many of those Antheas can we fit in the box? 
And uh, so sure enough, they did. And that was actually my last day there. And uh, I, I flew back, I, I, not on the same plane as the fish. That would have been cool. But not on the same plane. But I got back to Seagrist about 12 hours after those fish came in. And uh, I remember the, the buyer at the time, the main buyer at the time, didn't ask me how my trip was. Just looks at me and goes, do you know anything about these Antheas? I don't like them. No, no, no. Antheas? Oh yeah, uh, I may have I may have uh, handpicked those and added those, and I may be buying one for my tank at home. But don't worry about it. No, it's dangerous when you go over there. Is what I'm getting at. But yeah, you know, it's it's crazy to see the whole supply chain in action. It, it really, really is. Now I'm glad you bring that up. It brings a very human aspect to. I think that some you know of the hobbyists just don't really get to see or or think about you know they think about where the fish come from. But like you said, it's a very different picture when you actually get to experience it. And is why I want to bring you on here to share that. I'm, I'm glad you brought up that, you know, these places there, you know, when we go over there, you know, you said they, they had a banner and our logo on it, and they're so excited to see us. And that really just tells the story of how we're partners with these people and how we share information as far as how can we have better husbandry standards? What are our best practices? And we work with these vendors for years. You know, some of these vendors have been with us since almost, you know, the inception of our marine carrying at Seagrest. Um, so how has that partnership really just kind of benefited us and really that plays down to the retailer and really to you guys, the hobbyists? Yeah, and that's exactly how we look at it, right? We don't look at it necessarily as a supplier-buyer relationship because that's very black and white, very cut and dry, very bland. And frankly, is, is not something that is going to change the future of the trade, um, much less change it for the better. So the strategy that we take, especially with marine suppliers, and I would say all suppliers, but again, you know, marine is kind of where where my wheelhouse is. So when we when we talk with our marine suppliers, we don't talk to them just as, hey, can you send me this fish because we need it. We have genuine conversations on a on a pretty consistent basis about how are things going, what can we do better, how can we be better partners, how can we improve X, Y, and Z. And how can we continue to move forward? So it's critical for us, at least, that throughout the supply chain, because while the supply chain is simple in the in, in the sense that you have very short, quick supply chains, there's a complexity to transporting live animals, whether it's from my house in Tampa to somebody else's house in Orlando, or shipping it across the entire globe. It's a live animal and you have extra care that goes into it than say shipping a, you know, a box of shoes or what have you. So yeah, there's a, there's a mentality that we build and a relationship that we build with all of our suppliers that is beyond just a, a buyer relationship. To give you an example, so I, I do the marine audits, right? And I uh, work with all the standards. I'm not a buyer. We have uh, three other employees at, just at Seagrass Farms and then we've got, oh geez, um, at least three more within Seagrass Inc. that are the buyers. So we've got multiple people talking to them from multiple different aspects. Uh, and then and then there's another, uh, one of our executives does a lot, helps a lot with this uh, in the sense that he talks to some of our suppliers, sometimes it seems like on a daily basis. Um, but it, it's all for how can we be better partners? How can we continue moving forward? It's critical for us, absolutely critical. And I think that's a great point when we do have challenges and when we do foresee things that 
you know, are coming down the pike, you know, we can address that. It's a very kind of, you know, open conversation when you have a relationship like that with our, our vendors. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, you know, when I was, when I was at, uh, in, in pet retail, so when I was at the retail store and this isn't true of Seegers Farms, but there were suppliers where we would never hear from them. We'd place an order and the, the order would show up. That's not, that's not how things should be handled with live animals at any point in the supply chain. And, and that's why we think it's so critical uh, in working with these suppliers. And, and, you know, while I work with the truly with the supply to Seagrist uh, Inc. And even the Seagrist Inc. to retail end, it, it's the same mentality. We, we, uh, we don't consider our, our folks uh, salespeople. I think we call them partner coordinators and things like that. So it's it's more than just selling a live animal. It's it's partnering with someone to make sure that the live animal gets to where it needs to go in a healthy manner, in a responsible manner, in an ethical manner. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, the whole reason we do everything that we do every day of the week is to make sure that the hobbyist, the end consumer for these animals, can enjoy the animal for as long as possible. And it's critical that all starts with the supply chain. Any Anyone who audits us looks over, and by audits us, I mean, you know, our customers come visit Seagrist, uh, uh, Seagrist Inc. facilities. And, and, and to see these documents, they might see a turn of phrase or, or verbiage in there. They're like, didn't we talk about that? We did. Absolutely, did. you are an expert in that field, and we applied it here with what we do, and we very much so appreciate it. So, um, you know, while, while Seagrass Inc. has, uh, I'm a little bit biased here, but while Seagrass Inc. has some of the best minds within the trade, uh, we're constantly learning, we're constantly trying to get better. Um, so, so yeah, so we learn all the time from our retailers, from, from hobbyists, even. I mean, there's, there's hobbyists who have asked me questions that have made me think, you know, hmm, should we really do it this way or should we, you know, rethink how we do it? And so, you know, when it comes to supply chains, no matter who you are within the trade, you could be a hobbyist, you, it could be your only fish tank, you could have a nano cube on your tank. Um, ask questions about supply chain, ask questions, learn about it. Uh, you know, if, you know, if you're at your retailer, ask them questions, reach out to us if you have questions, um, because we have answers. But at the same time, we're going to ask you questions. How'd the fish look? How is this fish doing? How did this fish do compared to this fish? Do you think this quality is good? All kinds of things. And that's how we get better. That's how as a trade, we get better. Absolutely. And, you know, we're constantly updating. So, you know, we've talked a lot about on the vendor side of things and what we have to do here, you know, on the flip side, when you get back home and you put your feet back on the ground here at Seagrest, there's a lot of things on our side that have to be in place in order for the fish to, you know, ensure their health and ensure their documents and CITES and legal, you know, how does that work once the fish are here? And I know there's a lot of back end stuff previous to the fish landing. What do we have to have on our end in order to make it, you know, safe transport for the hobbyists and, you know, safe you know, for all the animals? Right. So much in the same way that we have collection standards and um, statements of commitments for our suppliers annually, the Seagrassink facilities sign a very similar document. Now it's adapted to being a importer slash wholesaler. So the verbiage is a little bit different. You know, it doesn't say collecting necessarily because we don't collect, you know, fish, but we, but we have other steps that aren't necessarily in uh, the, the um, supplier form. So we have a document and it's the same, same way. Um, <laughs> this year, because we changed it a bit, 
um, because of some initiatives, <coughs> excuse me, initiatives we're taking on and because of some changes in legislation. When we look at things like Indonesia, we look at things like Hawaii, uh, different pressures globally, things like that, and uh, the growing uh, movement of environmentalism and how do we respond as a trade. Uh, we had to make some changes this year, which is, again, always looking to get better. Um, we spent um, at least five weeks. It might have been more than that. I'll be honest, I'm losing track of time. It might have been about five weeks uh, of research, of development, of, of policies, of, in a sense, simulating these policies and how are they going to work? Um, you know, we, we, we take extreme care in how we word things um, because we understand the ramifications if we leave things ambiguous. So, yeah, it... Um, I think we changed like two paragraphs this year within this document. Uh, and yeah, I think I spent about five weeks on it. So um, yeah, a, a lot goes into it. And yeah, so on, on our side, what this document holds and, and these standards to which we hold ourselves. Um, and again, if, you, if you're a retailer uh, and, and would like to see it, reach out to us um, and, and we'd be happy to oblige. So what this document does is holds ourselves essentially, polices ourselves to a standard that we think the industry needs to be held to. So we look at things like, how do we work with suppliers? That's in here. That's one of the, I think it might actually be clause 1A, which is the first clause. Um, how are suppliers communicated with? How do we select suppliers? I mean, that's a whole process in and of itself. You know, so how do we go through that process? How do we properly vet uh, new suppliers, especially ones on the other side of the world. What's, what, what does that look like? Um, how, do, how do we make sure that we adhere to international laws and treaties and legislation, whether that's CITES ensuring permits are up to date, uh, whether that's the laws and regulations of transport. So before I came to Seagrist, I had no clue that there is uh, a set of laws um, that is designed specifically at how to transport live animals. And within that, specific laws about transporting live fish that get down to the nitty gritty of boxes, amount of water, it's it's nuts. So you gotta dive into all of that. And that's represented in this document. And then, you know, we get to the point where we look at how are the animals cared for throughout the supply chain? While we hold our uh, suppliers to that standard, uh, as they collect or as they're growing out or, or what have you uh, to the point of export. And then once obviously they're within a Seagrasting facility, we, you know, our suppliers are then just communicated with, and then, and then the onus is on us. How do we ensure quality animals? How do we ensure that the animal is going to make it to the retailer safely? And then in turn, we want to support our retailers. We want to partner with our retailers. How do we get them to have the absolute most probability for success on these animals? So uh, husbandry and quality control and quality assurance are key parts of this document. And then, you know, it, it kind of all culminates uh, into how does this audit and review process work? And that is something that uh, I did not start this. I would love to say that I did, but Elwin Segrist and, and Quentin Segrist uh, before me, um, put a lot of legwork into what does it take to get to this point? And we've refined it since we refine it every year. 
Um, but the work that they did, the groundwork that they did, the knowledge and insights that they gained through uh, decades of experience within the marine trade and pet trade in general, uh, really laid the foundation for this. And now we have such a strong foundation in these documents and in these practices uh, that we're able to grow, go above and beyond what we ever thought was going to be possible. And we're able to use this and share this knowledge and share this information to help try to make the entire pet trade better. That's what we're here for. You know, uh, Seeger Stink is great and, and we want to do everything we can to be the best option for stores, for hobbyists, for suppliers. But ultimately, at the end of the day, we know that our actions have ramifications and impacts throughout the trade. And that's how these documents are written. That's how our practices and audits uh, and supplier visits are, are maintained and, and withheld. Um, so it's critical for us. We, we view this with uh, the utmost importance. You know, we, we look at this as we've got to get this right. There is no option for failure. It sounds cliche, uh, but it's the truth. These are live animals. This is a, a supply chain. Uh, management. This is uh, an, an industry management type effort. So that that's it's it's intense, uh, but we do it because we love it, uh, for one, uh, and, and because it's the right, responsible, ethical, and sustainable thing to do. That sounds like you have a busy week coming up. I know you said you have your first audit starting Monday, or is it Sunday evening? It'll be, because of the yeah, time. <laughs> the first one uh, is going to be, I think, Monday night. I better go check my calendar. Yeah, so the, they start, we've spent, uh, again, the five weeks uh, process of getting these documents signed uh, and, and edited and then, you know, out and signed. And, and now uh, over the past couple of weeks, we've started to contact our suppliers to set up times. Um, so the, the, the process itself uh, virtually takes a couple of different sessions of a few hours each. Um, in person, it's a couple of days. Um but, you know, in that a couple of days, we go out to lunch, we have transit time. So, uh, yeah, exactly. So it's, um, you know, virtually it's much more succinct. So we're able to do it a little bit more efficiently, um, but it's still the same premise. Uh, I, I know there's some suppliers that don't like that we do it because everybody's Wi-Fi is different, um, but we actually make them, you know, if they're a tablet or a cell phone, make them carry us around like we're walking through the facility uh, and, and ensure that we can see everything. So it's more than just asking questions, even virtually. Um, there, there's a, a psychology to all of it. There's a method to all this madness. We test it on each other prior to working with our suppliers. We ask our suppliers what more we could have done, how we could uh, improve that whole process, how we could get better information. So yeah, it's... Um, yeah, they start next week. It, uh, we have a lot of suppliers um, to go through. It's frankly terrifying to my sleep schedule thinking about how many we have. Um, but yeah, so it'll be fun. So if you need me for like the next month, um, call me at night because that's when I'm going to be awake. <laughs> well, fantastic. I really appreciate you coming on here. I think that gives, you know, our retailers, our hobby partners, just a great perspective on something, you know, they may not ever really get to talk about or get to really think truly through. So I appreciate you coming on here. I appreciate you being a part of, you know, the Seagrest Inc. and helping us be who we are. Uh, and, you know, in the words of our, our leadership, this is what help looks like. <laughs> this is who we are. I know you've heard that plenty of times. <laughs> All right, Alan, well, I'll let you get back to it. You have a great evening. And right, thank you. you.